You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, the EV focused The Driven and One Step Off the Grid. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well and been stimulated by a very interesting conversation with Professor Rayner uh, that we'll get to no doubt. No doubt, yes, talking about em- uh, methane emissions. Um, this quite timely in a month, we've just learnt, has been uh, not just hotter than any other um, month um, before, but um, by some considerable margin. And uh, methane is often the uh, sort of the, the forgotten troublemaker in all of this, um, particularly over the short term. But um, And, and, and could... Giles, uh, you know, in all the context of that, all that, is it worth mentioning right up front that all energy's on next week and... Uh, uh, there'll be a methane stream as well as a huge amount of other additionally interesting stuff there. <laughs> a methane stream. Um, there's going to be a lot of really interesting announcements um, and um, and speeches and things. Um, look, Renew Economy actually has a, um, a uh, what do you call it? We've got a thing there. Um, we've got a, um, a, not a show, but we've got a booth. That's what we've got. We've got a booth. Oh, I, so I thought a thing by. sounded much more interesting than a booth, but anyway. <laughs> we've got a booth. We'll be there. Um, try to, you can sit, sit, sit down and just watch us try and bash out stories um, during the day and all just come and have a chat. So um, that should be good. But look, we'll get to the interview um, later on, David, but we should probably just cover some of the news of the week. Um, a few things happen in Queensland, but first of all, a lot of focus on on the origin bid it's probably one of the biggest things happening in the uh, in the market at the moment the independent experts report from grant samuel came out um you've had a look at it have you what do you make of it well it, i haven't had a chance to look at it extensively i think what we all turn to mostly us analysts is the valuation independent experts report done by grant samuel now uh, this normally comes up with the uh, <clears throat> right answer uh, as far as the uh, bidders are concerned, but um, uh, the, it also contains a lot of very useful information. And it reminded me once again that valuation is is far more of an art than a science. For those that are interested, when you do these, you know, cash flow valuations and look at the net present value, which my ex boss used to call the no present value. Um, uh, NPV, you find that a lot of it is tied up in what's called the terminal value. That's the part of the valuation that's beyond the explicit forecast period. And that is essentially a guess, and particularly when you get to something like octopus energy. Uh, but the point I suppose I wanted to get to is that the retail business um, uh, and generation business is expected to have a, a, a relatively constant um, stream of earnings. Uh, other than the decline in the um, that when 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 Araring closes, and you you'll probably want to say something about whether and if Araring does close, but it will have to close. But I, I think the thing I for me that uh, rammed home is that Origin at that point becomes a lot more risky um, because if it doesn't have uh, a balance between generation and retail. Uh, then it's very exposed to getting caught short uh, on the retail side by just not having enough generation. This, we've seen several, lots of examples of this uh, through the history of electricity retailing and 
the, in, in Australasia, the prime context was when AGL went into New Zealand and didn't buy enough hedges and got taken to the cleaners, much like the rugby team, uh, by, by the Kiwis. Um, and, and so that's something that Origin will have to be very conscious of and its shareholders going forward. Well, you've been banging on for quite a while about the failure of the utilities to build enough renewables um, replacement capacity for the coal-fired power stations that they've long suggested that they're going to close. Um, I mean, surely Origin should have known this, or they seem to be sort of quite happy with their ability to sort of hedge and, and, and write PPAs. I mean, I do notice... Um, no, no, I'll get you to respond before to that before I sort of... Look, I, I'm, I'm very clear in my opinion that none of the Gentilers have done anywhere near uh, what they should uh, morally and even financially do to uh, replace their coal generation. Uh, but it's the pedal's going to hit the metal for Origin coming up. And the reason they haven't done it's obvious. Uh, it's because they're going to get a takeover. It becomes someone else's problem. Let's just um, uh, see what we mm. can extract for our, for our shareholders and away we go. Yeah, okay. Well, look, the report does sort of um, itemise some of the things that they are planning. Um, there's about four or five solar farms, I think. Um, there's about four or five different battery storage facilities. Um, Not one wind the- farm. Not one wind farm. That is interesting, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> um, and there was no information about the um, the scope of the PPAs that they've already signed. Um, I mean, apart from the sort of the, the quantity, but not really the breakdown of the prices, which always frustrates me because I do like to see what the PPA prices are. And no um, discussion of the forward book, you know. And I, none of the Gentilers is building a wind farm. Well, uh, well, except for one is now sort of contracting with Genex, which would no doubt cover. But I don't actually think uh, uh, you know AGL or Energy Australia or Origin could develop a wind farm. I just don't think they've got the people or the skills to actually do it. Well, allowing other people to do it, and I guess, um, well, it's going to be interesting to see how Brookfield does if it actually um, is able to take over Origin. Do you think they're going to get it at the current price, or doesn't really matter if it moves 10, 15, 20 cents or whatever, or do you think it's just going to go through as it is? Uh, I don't know. I have an opinion, uh, having read the experts' report for all the five minutes, um, uh, <laughs> or actually half an hour, and having read a lot of them before, I, I have an opinion, but it's really, it's at this point, it's just a negotiation about who has the upper hand. I mean, uh, yes. do the existing shareholders, can, will they be able to, strong and united enough that it's a wrong number? Grant Samuel said that the price was uh, fair and reasonable and, and uh, would fall if the bid didn't succeed. Yeah, that's interesting. And look, there's, that's the only, not the only negotiation going on because there's, of course, the negotiation between Origin and the New South Wales government about the future of Araring. Um, Grant Samuel makes a few interesting observations about that. One, uh, they say that New South Wales is obviously not wanting to pay much money. Um, two, they say that there's not real a lot of value in it for Origin unless they do get a lot of money from um, the New South Wales government to cover their costs. Um, and they say also that if there is any extension, it's not going to be for very long, just for a couple of years. And I guess that's what people kind of been thinking for a while anyway, that if it is extended, it might just be for one or two units, uh, just to sort of cover any sort of potholes that emerge um, in the infrastructure roadmap, which um, we're eagerly awaiting the results of, and particularly the latest tenders, but um, are yet to hear. Yes, and then the next version of the ISP is out in late December, just before Christmas. And that's, I think, the single document I'm most looking forward to. But in terms of uh, paving over the potholes, uh, it seems to be Queensland that's getting a move on, announcing projects here, there, and and we've saw a wind farm uh, opening and Energy Australia uh, and Genex coming to a deal over 30% of their Kidston wind farm, didn't we? 
Yeah, we did. Look, that's pretty interesting. Genex has been pretty busy at the moment. One putting out a fire at its Bouldercombe battery um, in, in the one module, um, and we expect to hear more about that next week, um, the reasons for that, and um, I think the company's still pretty confident about getting back up and uh, and commissioning that project um, before the end of the month. Um, they've got about another week to do so. But they've also been very busy. Uh, this Kidston Wind project's a really interesting one. It's about 258 megawatts, if I remember off the top of the head. Energy Australia contracted for 30% of it. That gives it a foundation customer to go ahead and get other customers and finance for it. It's part of that whole clean energy hub with the pumped hydro storage, the first privately built uh, pumped hydro, the first any sort of pumped hydro, I think, apart from Snowy, which will be a long time afterwards for four decades. And that goes with an existing solar farm and follow, follows their success with Fortescue um, a week or so ago with the Bulleye Creek solar and battery project. So GenX is kind of rolling out um, quite a few big projects. So um, congratulations to them. Uh, indeed. And, and in general, the Queensland government's made a lot of announcements, um, which could well be because they want to get it done before the next election. But who knows about that? But the other thing that caught my eye this week, uh, Giles, was the CEFC, uh, which you re- uh, an article in, in, in Renew Economy, where um, the, the CEO, Ian Learmonth, said that they need 120, $120 billion is needed to do the um, transition in Australia. As it happens, my estimate of CapEx was $118 billion, so I'd like to congratulate Ian <laughs> on getting, getting the right answer. Uh, but, but more to the point, uh, and that excludes rooftop solar, by the way, that would add another 40 or $50 billion, but uh, we won't see that in public numbers. Uh, but the, the real point is, when you, when you do the analysis on that, uh, if that was the right number, you'd probably end up with an electricity price that started with a six in the, in, in the mid-sixes. So that's, that's a very acceptable price, I think. Well, it is an acceptable price and one that we really need to reach because, I mean, there's a never-ending amount of scepticism about whether that's actually going to happen. Um, I mean, one of the issues we have at the moment is that we've got a fair amount of renewables into the grid. I think we reached a um, an instantaneous share of a record share of 71.5% in the last week, and we'll probably see that fall again in the next couple of weeks. But um, it still averages about 35 to 40% um, over a month or so, and that's still not enough to displace the fossil fuel and other legacy generators which essentially sort of set the price um, during those periods with on, in high demand and in the evenings and uh, we also wrote a report this week in, in Renew Economy about some of the price setting and one of the interesting things we noticed uh, David was that Snowy Hydro's sort of um, not complete absence but um, very rarely set the price in these high price events in New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia over the last six months. The AER is obligated to report every time the price goes above $5,000 a megawatt hour which is high enough. Um, normally Snowy Hydro are in there with their ears pinned back because they own a lot of that, they dominate that part of the market. Um, and I just wonder whether there's any, any quiet words between the Minister and the Snowy Hydro um, operations team, especially considering some of the problems they're creating for the government with blowout and costs and delays. But also interesting to note the two batteries in South Australia, Lake Bonnie and Hornsdale, also setting prices at very high levels and rebidding. So, um, so much for smashing the gas cartel. Um, they seem to be um, quite happy to set the price at quite high levels when they have the opportunity to do so. Ah, yes. Everyone wants to make a dollar, Giles, you and, you and I included. Um, uh, it's only us, uh, it's only the scientists that I think have um, uh, motives that, that don't include the market. Um, 
Uh, and a few oh, well, look, I mean, look, I, I shouldn't be surprised. Look, I really shouldn't be surprised. But um, it was sort of it, it was sort of quite interesting to sort of see that. Um, you know, you'd you probably hope, if anything, that the sort of the increase in competition might sort of modify the prices. Oh, that, but that's I what guess... will do it eventually. When there's enough supply, more batteries are built. Uh, they batteries once they're built. This is a really important point for everyone to understand, and why gas won't set the price longer term. Once batteries are built, their operating costs, are, and assuming there's plenty of lunchtime solar, their operating costs are very low, right? All they have to cover is their round-trip efficiency, essentially, and uh, in the longer run, the depreciation. But, but, so they can operate for $20 a megawatt hour if they want to, or less. Uh, uh, whereas gas can never operate at less than its actual fuel cost without making a loss. Um, and, and, and so batteries will always be able to undercut uh, gas once they're built, but they do have to earn a return on capital. So once we get lots of batteries, they'll be the price setters. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. David, look, we're going to take a short break and then I think we'll come back and introduce um, our interview guest for the week. Um, and I'm going to let you do that, but um, we'll be back in just a few seconds. Australia's most anticipated clean energy event, All Energy Australia, returns to the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre, October 25 and 26. This event is a must for industry suppliers and experts and those involved in the renewable energy and energy storage sectors. Featuring over 350 suppliers and attracting more than 10,000 industry professionals, you can't miss this free event. Register now for All Energy Australia 2023, October 25 and 26, Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. Uh, you're back with the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm here with uh, David Leach. David, um, please introduce our guest for the week. Our guest for the week, uh, an expert, a global expert on methane, is uh, Professorial fo Fellow uh, Peter Rayner, who uh, currently actually is employed at uh, Ross Garno's uh, Superfuture Institute, um, but also works at the University of Melbourne, supervising students, and he's got a great discussion explaining methane to me in, in, in very well, I think. Uh, Professor Peter Rayner from the uh, Profes Professorial Fellow at the uh, University of uh, uh, Melbourne. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast. It's a delight to be here. Uh, Peter, uh, we haven't talked much previously on this podcast that I can recall about methane, uh, uh, which is your field of expertise. I think that uh, methane uh, is a complicated thing in that it um, has a relatively short lifespan uh, and therefore understanding its impact on global warming is a little more complex than just talking about carbon dioxide. Uh, it may be something like about 20% or even more of total, em total global warming potential when measured over a 100-year uh, period. But perhaps you could uh, just talk to me a little bit about uh, methane. Uh, if, uh, yeah, That's right. You've covered the basics well there, actually. So methane's the second most important anthropogenic greenhouse gas after carbon dioxide, CO2. So if we kind of rank these things um, from the calculations, we can see that roughly 55% of the warming that we've had since pre-industrial times is driven by carbon dioxide and about 20% is driven by methane. And that's despite the fact that there is about 200 times as much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as there is methane. So if you have a million molecules from the atmosphere in front of you, about 400 of them are going to be carbon dioxide these days and about two of them 
are going to be methane, roughly. And that's quite a big change for both of them from the pre-industrial state, but the relative change is actually bigger for methane than it is for carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide has increased by about one and a half times since pre-industrial times. Methane's increased by almost three, so about 2.8. So there's been a larger relative change in the amount of methane in the atmosphere, the concentration, than it has the amount of carbon dioxide. But the amount of methane is still much smaller than the amount of carbon dioxide. So why is methane so important? I mean, how do you get 200 times as much carbon dioxide, but only three times as much impact on global warming? And that's because each molecule of methane traps a lot more heat than each molecule of carbon dioxide. So if you actually compare that molecule for molecule, you need to be careful how you do that crunch the numbers, but it can be kind of 80 or 90 times as much um, heat is trapped by a methane molecule as it is by a carbon dioxide molecule. And the, um, the strength of that trapping makes up for quite a bit of the difference in concentration. Another thing you mentioned was the lifetime. And that's a, that's a big factor about methane where methane doesn't hang around in the atmosphere very long. Carbon dioxide does for quite some time. Um, many decades, um, and some of it for centuries. Methane doesn't, because unlike carbon dioxide, methane is subject to chemistry in the atmosphere. So methane gets attacked by various kind of cleaning agents in the atmosphere that also clean up a lot of other stuff that we're putting up there. And it actually finishes up as carbon dioxide in the end. So methane ultimately turns into carbon dioxide, uh, and then it hangs around for the same amount of time as carbon dioxide does. So uh, but while it's being methane, it has this much stronger heat trapping capacity than carbon dioxide. And that's why it's a, it's a gas that's worth thinking about. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll get onto that shortly. But I am uh, uh, somewhat riskily, uh, given my uh, limited ability, going to ask why methane traps so much more heat than carbon dioxide. Uh, uh, yeah. So th there's two reasons for that. One of them is easy and one of them is hard. The easy reason is there's not so much of it. So if there's not so much of it, then the amount of radiation or the, 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 the frequencies, the wavelengths of the particular um, radiation that's carrying the heat away from the Earth, uh, there's, there's less of it has been trapped by other molecules of the same stuff. So if there's very little of a gas floating around in the atmosphere, each new molecule you add can do more trapping. The other reason is that the just the, the internal physics of the molecule means that it's um, it responds to frequencies of light or of heat in this case that happen to be around in the atmosphere very very strongly. So it just happens to line up with a few places where there's a fair bit of heat to be trapped. So there's this and and that uh, that will get us down a very serious rabbit hole about how molecules behave. Um, so the only thing that matters is the molecular behaviour is part of it, and the fact that we do have so much less of it is the other part. Yes, uh, if I get time, I would like uh, to explore a bit more of that rabbit hole, uh, just again showing how little science I know and how old I am, but uh, perhaps I'll move on a little bit. Uh, typically, speaking as a market analyst, I like to um, um, uh, segment uh, things into both geography and into the um, underlying activity that causes the emission. Uh, so let's start a little bit with geography if you're inclined. And uh, actually, it might be better to start with activities because I think that will give a clue to the geography. 
what are the activities that lead to methane emissions? And perhaps if there are sinks, maybe we could talk about them a little bit too. Absolutely. So it, it does indeed pay to start with activity because that'll lead us on to the geography. So remember I said that the amount of methane we've got in the atmosphere now is about 2.8 or three times as much as we had in the um, pre-industrial atmosphere. That's a bit of a guide that the total emissions of methane so if you add up the natural and the anthropogenic emissions are going to be roughly three times what they were before we started doing stuff. So that means that there has to be a natural emission before we get involved, and there is. Um, it's largely caused by, by wetlands. So stuff, organic stuff that's decaying in places where you can't get much oxygen, instead of going to carbon dioxide, which is what happens when stuff normally decays, some of it will go to methane. And that happens in, in, in swamps. It happens particularly where it's warm. So we think that the biggest single natural source is actually tropical wetlands, which are pretty big. There's lots of inundation for parts of the year in places like the Amazon. And there are peat swamps, uh, peat forests and swamps in places like Southeast Asia. And they, they're pretty big methane sources. But they've been dwarfed now by what's happening anthropogenically. And there are two big anthropogenic sources. One is agriculture. And the other one is extraction and use of fossil fuel in various forms. So let's talk first about agriculture. There's two ways that happens. One of them, and by far the biggest one, is from livestock production. So the livestock that we tend to eat um, have this developed this spectacular technique for being able to turn grass into, into cow, if you like, or into sheep. And part of that process involves breaking down those um, materials that we can't break down. The, the cellulose and so on, um, into materials that the, the animal can then digest. And part of that process, uh, actually it, it's a byproduct, it's not particularly useful for the animal, but part of that process produces methane. And that happens right at the, at the front of the digestive tract um, of the animals. Um, it, it turns out, if you're curious about such things, that most of, the, most of the methane in an animal comes out the front end, not the back end. Um, and that's caused by this, this bunch of effectively um, probably intruder bacteria that have colonized and make spectacular use of this process in livestock. So that's a really, that's a big source. There's a smaller source from wetlands that we've made ourselves essentially to grow rice. So rice agriculture produces a, a, a significant amount, but the overwhelming source from agriculture is from livestock production. And that's pretty well scattered across the world. Um, it's, you, you can, you can pretty much map most of the, of the livestock farming areas in countries, you'll see really big concentrations in places like feedlots, uh, but you'll also see very widespread, much more kind of diffuse emissions of methane from, from rangeland farming. And that happens you know, just about everywhere where humans go because we like raising animals. Uh, yes, and, and then and then we have the mining, uh, coal and oil, I guess, and yep. uh, gas. Well, gas is uh, uh, partly methane, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Gas, natural gas is effectively methane almost entirely. Uh, so there's a couple of ways in which mining gets involved. There's perhaps about about three, and that depends a bit on whether we're mining coal, oil, or gas. So if we're mining coal, most coal has methane kind of buried in it. Absorbed onto the surface, um, it's stored in the coal because of pressure. Um, the stuff sitting underground, under maybe a few hundred meters of, of stuff, that keeps it at pressure. That keeps the methane embodied in the coal. And, when, and in fact, uh, to interject, that that is coal seam gas uh, essentially, and yep. e even to an extent shale. Well, but no, it's coal seam gas. That's yeah. right. So if there's enough of it, 
um, we can we can actually extract that usefully. Can, can, can depressurize the coal, uh, wait till this gas essentially bubbles out of the coal and suck it into pipes if we're lucky, and and it'll make it to the surface. If we're mining coal, if we're not trying to extract coal seam gas, then in general we won't bother about that gas. It, it'll just um, be 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 sucked out. Uh, it's released from the coal as the coal is depressurized, broken up, moved to the surface, etc. So coal mines themselves tend to produce methane. It's really different depending on the natural history of the coal. It's actually, um, it's an area of geology I don't know enough about, but it, it varies certainly a lot. The, the gas composition of coals is really variable from mine to mine. Now, if you're mining underground, then that gas can only escape to the surface through a pretty narrow set of possibilities, essentially ventilation shafts and whatever to the surface. And so you have a chance if you can uh, either make use of it or um, are forced to spend the money, you can trap that vented methane and, and either use it. Incentivized to spend the money. I think it's uh, historically been a, quite a good uh, source of Australian uh, ACCU carbon capture units. Yep. But anyway, we'll, we'll, let's that's keep right. going. Sorry. That's right. So in, indeed. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, if you're mining open cut, it's very hard to capture that gas because you have these huge exposed surfaces um, and you, it's, it's very hard to find methods that will uh, allow you to capture that gas. Um, there, there's been some work done, but it, it's tricky. Um, so open cut mines are a, are a hard source to, to mitigate. We'll come back to them, uh, and less, uh, but of course that's something agriculture and open cut coal are very relevant to Australia, but equally around the world, uh, oil is 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 also and and uh, flares and venting and uh, let's talk a little bit about yep. that as well. Absolutely. So most people when they're extracting oil, most oil wells will have gas attached to them, and it, it varies a great deal how much of it there is. And again, that's an area of geology that I wish you knew more about. But but it, it's widely varied. Sometimes you can sell the gas if you're in the right kind of place and you've got the right kind of infrastructure and there's enough of it. Fine, you can sell it. If not then it's going to finish up uh, getting into the atmosphere somehow. And you've got a couple of choices about how you do that. You can either just vent it, um, which is um, pretty bad. It just takes methane off the oil and, and um, off the oil stream and vents it straight to the atmosphere. In general, people won't do that deliberately. They'll try and burn it. And if you burn it, remember I said that methane turns into carbon dioxide and it does most of its heat trapping while it's being methane. If you can burn it, you can short circuit that process. So you can you can uh, ensure that the gas that's making it to the atmosphere is actually carbon dioxide, and then you've got the kind of normal global warming potential, normal heat trapping strength that you get with carbon dioxide. The problem, and this is becoming a very hot topic in research at the moment, is exactly how efficient that process is. So there's a bunch of numbers that are that are commonly used around the world to. Uh, let, 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 let's come back to the. Uh... To that because that's something I definitely we are going to talk about yep. but just to put all this in perspective uh, if, if we say that uh, methane emissions I, I forget the exact number but the 20% of total global warming potential which, uh, uh, would I be right to say that it's uh, about 40% uh, you know coal and oil and stuff and about 30% agriculture and the rest from uh, wetlands type that's, things. That... That's pretty close. Yep. It's, it, it's, we, we often say you know, divide it roughly into thirds. Uh, and it's, it's, I think now it's true that the fossil fuel is a, is a bit larger, um, but that's roughly right. 
Good, and therefore if we know where fossil fuel extraction takes place and we do know, then we're going to have a, a, um, a good idea about the geography and I think we can presume that uh, livestock takes place pretty much in relation to population, uh, you know, very, very broadly. Broadly, too broadly, it, it turns out for my purposes. Yes. Um, I've actually had, had fun trying to map what the livestock emissions across Australia are. That turns out to be surprisingly hard. Um, but we've, we've managed to, to get some numbers that don't assume that, that, um, that there are, for example, huge numbers of cows in the centre of Melbourne, which is what the original databases did. No, no, that's right. But I'm thinking about it at, at, at the country level. But, yeah, but yes, yeah. uh, um, um, uh, so that, I mean, I guess we would expect quite a lot of livestock emissions in places like China and India and, and the United States and Indonesia uh, and, um, you know, a fair amount of um, uh, thermal fuel related methane emissions from the same areas. And you yep. could probably add in Russia as well. Huge amounts, um, in, in, in some forms of agriculture produce more methane kind of per kilogram of, of, of meat, if you like, than others. So it turns out that, that beef and sheep are particularly bad. Pigs and poultry are better. So they're not, they're not perfect, but they're better. So it turns out that places where beef and lamb is, your, is the favourite meat, so that means places like the US, places like Australia, places like South America, uh, you get um, proportionally larger methane emissions from livestock than you do in places like, like like large parts of Asia where pigs and poultry or parts of Europe where they uh, they figure a bit more heavily. That's right. So let's, uh, I want to come back to the satellite measurements and all the changes and the fact that we may have been under-reporting methane emissions, all of which I think are, 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 is good stuff to talk about. But I just wanted to um, look forward to the plan ahead. Uh, I commonly read that reducing methane emissions is is likely going to be easier uh, and have a quicker effect because of the shorter life uh, cycle than reducing co2 emissions uh, it, obviously doing stuff about livestock is going to be difficult doing stuff about wetlands is going to be very difficult but the 30 or 40 percent that comes from coal and oil mining uh, uh, would basically automatically go away uh, as though if we reduce those activities. Yep. So, so one option there is to reduce those activities. Uh, that gets complicated by the fact that um, gas is talked about either as a transition fuel or as a firming fuel for enabling the decarbonisation of other parts of the energy system. So that there are there are complications there, but it's it's certainly true. Not not we... on this podcast. We don't talk <laughs> about it very much. Well, yep. We will keep talking about it for the next few years, but yep. uh, uh, people like me don't think that's the way forward, really. And, 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 and I'd agree with that. I don't think it's a long... I think it's a, it's a solution. My, my own view is that 10 years ago, it may have been a solution we needed, and it could have been a solution we actually even may have found some use for in decarbonising earlier, but I think its days probably passed. But that's, you know, that's a story that I've... I've fully understand that people with expertise across the, the energy system are going to have, diff, are going to have a, a, a serious debate about. Uh, but um, the other thing to note is that in almost all the cases that we're losing methane from these fossil fuel processes, it's lost money. Um, it's, it, there is some alignment at least in the environmental and economic considerations around methane in the way that there probably isn't around um, reduction of carbon dioxide emissions, or at least a, a clearer one. So one of the ways that I think we have more chance of acting on the methane problem fast is because uh, 
it's an easier sell in terms of, of, of kind of enlightened self-interest. Um, so you're saying that methane emissions are more likely to be associated with poor quality oil uh, when I say or sub-economic oil, uh, which may have other stuff in it like mercury and things, uh, you know, sub, sub, uh, sub-economic coal and, and so on. And poor quality engineering. So we didn't talk much about gas. Um, which is what, one of the emissions that has probably risen fastest as, as the gas industry's really, gas extraction's really taken off and various unconventional gas has really started to play heavily. Um, that stuff's harder to extract than conventional gas and the infrastructure is much more complicated. Um, in various countries, there's a much broader range of, of market players, some of whom are really good and some of whom are not. And various friends of mine doing uh, surveys in the US have found that the methane emissions uh, from various gas extraction operations are strongly correlated with the kind of um, overall value, if you like, overall kind of uh, technical capability of the companies who are doing it. Yeah, um, that, yep. Uh, that's something I, I could talk about with with a lot more uh, confidence than some of the other stuff I talk about. <laughs> uh, Peter, let's uh, let's just talk about um, what's been going on in the science of measuring methane emissions, because uh, historically there's been a lot of debate about the uh, quality of the data, uh, particularly in relation, I guess, to uh, thermal fuel emissions. Uh, it's somewhat easier in the case of cattle I, I would imagine um, uh, and I think we've we've seen satellite uh, uh, be now anyway just talk to me a little bit about the, the yep, problem generally. Absolutely so in general when we're reporting emissions at a national level or even at a company level we'll often use a technique that says if you do this much of a, of a given activity then each unit of this activity like each ton of coal moved or something like that is going to produce this much methane and that's a so-called emission factor technique and you might that might get more complicated you might know that um, such and such an activity under in, in this place has more or less methane than elsewhere but that's that's really kind of um, a pretty much you know a, a accounting bookkeeping approach to doing it and that's in general the way this has been done for a long time and it, this isn't anybody's fault we just didn't have much better methods and then perhaps 15 years ago the first science papers I can remember about this were around the early 2010s, people started actually making measurements in the atmosphere uh, around these facilities. And they, 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 the argument went like this, if you're emitting this much methane and we measured downwind of your facility, we'd expect to see this much in the atmosphere. And we're not, we're seeing usually a significantly larger amount. And so people began to get concerned and, and, and really interested in whether in fact these reporting methods were working very well and the, the general consensus is they weren't and the general consensus is they were biased low so the general thinking is that each time we check in general we found that emissions are higher than um, we'd expected they were um, that is already a problem the problem got more intensely kind of um, studied when we started to be able to measure methane by satellite and that's a that's a technique that um, that a bunch of us have been involved in around carbon dioxide for a couple of decades. It started to be applied to methane in with real power. Again, first satellite that I knew about that was making good measurements about 2010, but particularly a satellite uh, that, that started flying in 2017, measuring in 2018, we started to be able to map methane. Just, just Peter, just uh, uh, get, let's go down that rabbit hole for one second. How do satellites measure 
atmospheric concentrations of gases in general and methane in particular? It's a, it's a spectacular method. So I, I mentioned already that the different shape, different structure of molecules means that they absorb uh, energy um, differently to each other. And that means that different molecules can have different trapping powers. It also holds for, uh, it, it makes it possible to measure them. So the way a satellite does this, it, it stares down at the earth and the sun is shining down on the earth and light travels down through the atmosphere, is reflected off the surface and travels back to the satellite. And you, for example, have a methane, a molecule like methane that will trap this energy, this light energy at a very particular frequency. Now, all sorts of other things are going on to that light. It's bouncing off dust in the atmosphere. It's being reflected by the Earth's surface. But if you're measuring at two neighboring frequencies, one of them is absorbed by methane, one of them is not, and you look at the ratio between those two frequencies that you see at the satellite, how much energy has actually been removed from that beam of light, you can back calculate essentially how much methane is along that pathway through the atmosphere. So you're not measuring the methane at the surface, you're measuring the total amount of methane through the atmosphere. And that's proven to be, it's, it's, it's uh, a similar way to how ozone has been measured for many decades. We've been measuring carbon dioxide that way for a couple of decades, and now we're measuring methane and a few other gases. That's, it's very interesting. And so the first satellite uh, that could do this uh, reasonably well about 2017, you're saying? The first one that could produce really good maps was about 2017. There'd been, there'd been um, missions before that that actually were targeting carbon dioxide, but um, could do methane as well because they, they measure across the right across the right wavelengths. But 2017, we have a, a mission flying that is mapping methane at a decent resolution. It's kind of a five by five kilometer resolution across the globe. You'd like better, uh, and, and instruments are coming that'll do better. But that enabled us to produce decent maps. And I guess uh, since then that practice has become well. Let's ask for what did that satellite data show in comparison to the uh, prior understanding. So it's, it started to point out that in general there were areas of high emission uh, that were coming out um, in particular places. So a very famous one in, in the so-called Four Corners area in the southwest US where we could start to see some um, elevated methane emissions that we just didn't expect. These were from old mines and these are places that we just didn't expect emissions to be happening, but they were. Um, and so there's been this series of surprises that we've seen from um, higher amounts of methane suggesting higher emissions in places uh, often associated with fossil fuel. Um, we've seen, for example, some really large emissions in parts of, of Central Asia where there's lots of extraction. Uh, it's not attached to a really good gas network, so it's not always easy for them to actually use that. They think probably think they're flaring it and they're probably losing quite a bit. So it's it's been a story of not super clear overall pattern. We can't as yet point to a place as, hey, look, methane concentration has risen in all the places that we're extracting fossil fuel. But we are seeing cases where something has gone wrong with the engineering or it just hasn't been handled very well um, in, in the kind of end of life for the, for the facility. And we're seeing significant methane in the atmosphere. Yes, and of course, the there's not often an economic cost at the moment uh, and so little incentive, which we'll come back to. But... Uh, just finishing on the satellites, uh, I, I seem to read that, that more and more satellites have been um, uh, launched that can do this job either incidentally or even specifically. I think I'm reading about one case, and I presume that the underlying computing power and measuring equipment is also continuing to move, move forward? 
and uh, the computing power is 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 a problem. What's I think we're even getting better at. I remember I said earlier on that all sorts of other things happens to that light. Um, how you handle dust and cloud and other stuff in the atmosphere. We're just learning more about the science um, of, of how to, to treat what the satellite is actually measuring and turn that into a concentration. So we're getting more and more confident. Uh, we're being able to do this at finer resolution so that the, the instrument that I've been talk we've been talking about, the 27 instrument called Tropomi, that measures the whole globe, but it measures it at this pretty rough resolution. It's pretty hard to see an individual facility at five by five kilometers in lots of places. Some of the instruments that are coming uh, will choose not to measure the whole globe, but they'll target hotspots. And they'll do that down to a kilometer or two kilometers. And there are even instruments that target narrower hotspots that are measuring down to places like areas like 100 meters or 50 meters. And those measurements aren't as good because you, you can't integrate as much signal to do that, but they can also see really strong plumes. So there's this suite of technologies coming down from measuring the globe um, so we can see kind of diffuse sources, things like agriculture or, or well-behaved fossil fuel sources that are perhaps leaking very much down to being able to target individual plumes from facilities. And that, that technology is now just coming down the pipe. There's a, there's a whole suite, there's a, a major instrument called MethaneSat that's being launched next year. The European Space Agency is launching a, a family of instruments to measure carbon dioxide and methane in a couple of years after that. And um, because this is now part of this sort of operational behavior for these these essentially you know, international weather services, if you like. We've been measuring this for decades. Yes. All right. Uh, and I guess just to finish then, um, can what's the overall conclusion from this? I mean, leaving aside that methane comes from such and such a facility uh, and maybe you could, you'd want to do something about that, um, in terms of the overall quantity of methane, can we say now that um, um, output from people like or conclusions that say the IEA uh, publish data quite regularly, um, is that likely to be a good estimate now or still an underestimate in your opinion? I'm betting it's still an underestimate um, is, is my sense of it. And that's, that's a guess. Um, and the reason I say that is because we haven't worked through all the sectors yet. So the IEA has been through recently and they've upgraded some of these factors that they use for various of these emission sources. Um, I think that process isn't finished. Um, so I think as we work through, we'll probably find that the anthropogenic source is a little greater than we think it is. Um, and we'll probably have it well targeted. Um, my, my suspicion is that the differences between what we think is going on and what is actually going on is probably pretty limited. It's probably pretty pretty narrowly focused on facilities that, that probably aren't behaving well. Yes, that's that's right. And, 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 and probably not such a big difference now that um, it would require a dramatic rethink of, of, of the overall um, <laughs> top-down view. I guess not. I, it, again, we're guessing. Uh, there, there, there is room for surprise, but I'm, I'm expecting that the four years of good measurements that we've seen from this instrument, we would, if there was a really major shock out there that, um, that, that said geographically the parts of the world that are extracting fossil fuel are a much greater source than we think, we would have seen it. I think they are greater, um, but as I agree with you, I think you know this will be um, in the percent terms. The, the big thing I think that it will enable is that when we do start to act more strongly to mitigate methane, I think we'll be able to see it. Right. Now, the only other 
not the only other thing, but the thing we didn't cover uh, already was uh, natural sinks. Uh, can we just talk about those for a second? Yep. yep. There's essentially one that really matters for methane, and that is the chemistry. So um, there's a, um, a material that's produced. It has the wonderful name of the hydroxyl radical. Um, it's, it's produced by sunlight interacting with water and a few other complicated things in the atmosphere, and it eats stuff. Um, it's the main way that carbon monoxide is removed from the atmosphere, and it's the main way that methane is removed from the atmosphere. It's, it's voracious stuff. It, it, it actually lives about a second before it finds some molecule that it would like to, uh, to eat. Um, and so that process is continually breaking down methane in the atmosphere, and it, it's a very efficient process. So it means that unlike carbon dioxide, the, the sources that we put into the atmosphere and this chemical sink for methane are pretty close to balance. So we are getting increases in methane concentration now, but they're nothing like as large in proportional terms compared to the source as we are for carbon dioxide. And that's because this chemical sink is efficient. That's right. Uh, that's right. So uh, I guess this takes us both out of our comfort area and but let me ask you, speaking as a scientist, uh, what what do you think is the way forward in managing globally <laughs> uh, uh, methane emissions? I I suspect that th this is going to be as usual. This approach of picking the low hanging fruit first and then going on to the harder stuff. So remember that as far as humans are concerned, the the, the two big drivers and um, are the fossil fuel and the agricultural activities. Fossil fuel is much easier to work on. Uh, partly, as I said, because there is at least some economic alignment. You don't want to be uh, wasting methane you could be selling if you've got the option to do it. And partly because it's a little more focused than trying to change the way livestock is produced worldwide. So I, I think that the, um, the policy focus around uh, acting on the fossil fuel industry first and then starting to work, and it, in parallel, doing the research that will enable us to roll out reductions across agriculture is the right way to go. Um, but I also think that the, the ability for us to act fast on climate mitigation via methane means that we should probably be pushing a bit harder on fossil fuel than we are. That's right. And that would be the carrot and the stick. And if I think about the stick, uh, and given the warming potential, it implies that um, I'm not sure if I should talk about a ton of methane emissions uh, um, should be priced 25 times as high as a, a, a ton of CO2 emissions. Yep, even 28 uh, is, is about where that number's come down to. Is we've, is we've we've played around with a few things. So and and indeed, in general, that's what happens when one thinks about the conversion to so-called CO2 equivalent. Uh, the, the number I think that the Australian government uses is currently 26 um, to, to uh, say how much more expensive a tonne of methane should be than a tonne of carbon dioxide. And uh, I, haven't, I haven't looked in the last couple of weeks, but I think the carbon price in Europe is about uh, 80 euros a tonne. So, you know, if you put that uh, price on, on methane emissions, it would be a pretty sharp break. But I don't think anywhere around the world is, is that actually done. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think there is, there is a, um, in principle, I think that the Europeans could trade methane via its, its CO2 equivalent setting, but I've, I've not seen much activity um, using that as, as, a, as a traded um, entity around, the, around Europe. You'll probably know that better than I will, in fact. 
yes, uh, uh, something I need to brush up on. And certainly the revenue potential from selling the, the gas is, is very, very small, but as you say, still positive. Uh, and if you had a, 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 a cost, then there'd be far more incentive to put the capex in place. But um, that's, that's one sort of general area. The other one is in agriculture, and one every now and then one sees a story about three or four times a year about someone can put a fee, an additive in, 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 in the feed that cattle get, I guess, particularly on feedlots. Uh, and that's going to eliminate the problem. What's your sort of thoughts about that topic? Yep, so I think I, I agree first that doing this around feedlots is obviously much easier than trying to distribute additives. Um, there are a whole stack of techniques that are being used to, to at least research uh, the mitigation of livestock methane. And uh, remember I said that that's also, it's an economic loss because those bacteria are absorbing carbon or, the, or expelling carbon from the grass that we've in fact rather was turned into an animal. Um, so there's, there's uh, and I, I forget the number, I think I've heard something like a 5% loss in yield from methane um, emissions from livestock. That's a significant economic incentive already. How to do this? Uh, it varies a lot by um, the agricultural forms. It's much harder in places like Australia where our animals spend rather less time in feedlots than they do in large parts of, of the Northern Hemisphere. Um, but the feed additives are not the only option that's being discussed. So the, the possibility that there's vaccination that can make the environment more hostile for these bacteria, for example, is being is being pretty seriously discussed. It's hard, you know, any, anytime you're doing anything with the food uh, that finishes up in, in human consumption, you've got to be really careful, um, justifiably. But it, it does look as though there are options. Another option, which I think probably deserves more attention than it gets, is just shifting the balance of stuff that we eat. Um, it, even from the point of view of just carbon dioxide footprint, eating the amount of um, kind of rangeland or feedlot beef and lamb that we do is really environmentally expensive. Uh, and it, it is, Peter, but at the same time, well, it's like I like rice. I don't. These days, I I grew up with uh, three kinds of meat was the sort of requirement in the country where I grew up at every meal on the table, at least in my grandfather's day. And I've been gradually uh, whittling it down over the whole of my life. But I still like my rice, for instance. Uh, it's I, I would argue that it's almost harder to change consumer behaviour than it is to uh, dose the animals. But I, I guess that's a psychology and marketing question. It's 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 a tricky one. And, and I probably agree with you around meat. The counterexample is dairy, where this is already changing quite fast. So the environmental footprint of some of the plant-based alternatives to dairy are actually substantially lower, at least on a greenhouse, um, at greenhouse level, than they are around um, dairy-based materials. And their consumer preference is changing. I, I, I suspect that's changing for reasons that doesn't have much to do with this question. Uh, it'd, be, it'd be really interesting to ask people who've switched why they've done it. But uh, I think you're right. And it, it's from the point of view of the research, it doesn't make a lot of difference. We want to make sure that we've got all the options in front of us. And that means that we want to keep researching additives. We want to keep researching vaccines. And we want to keep seeing whether broader changes in consumer preference will do some of the work for us too. Well, Peter, I think we've uh, covered uh, the topic in... Uh, 
a fair, fair amount of time, or to put it another way, we've taken up a lot of our audience's time on this introduction to methane. Um, is there any other things, points that we haven't made that should be made? I think that's covered covered most of it. Um, it's keep watch um, for the kind of coming information. We're, we're going to learn more and more about what's happening from mapping methane emissions from these satellites over the next few years. I'm involved in an effort called Open Methane. That's uh, one step for doing this across Australia. Um, and I think because of this short lifetime, um, I, I'd like people to take away the message that methane is perhaps the easiest way at the moment that we can reduce the heat trapping activities in the atmosphere. But if we don't do something about carbon dioxide, there's no point doing something about methane. So, so it's, it's not an either or. We will need to do both, but methane is probably, because of this short lifetime, pretty low-hanging fruit that we should pick. That's great, Peter. And uh, I, I think you're speaking at um, um, uh, All Energy Seminar as well, where there's a whole methane stream, so to speak. But uh, thanks very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Most welcome. And that was uh, Peter Rayner um, from Roscoano's uh, Superpower Institute talking to David about methane. Um, Australia's got a big methane problem. We have, but the world's the, the, the bad and good news about methane. It's 20% of emissions. It's only got a life cycle of uh, 12 years because it breaks down into CO2 in the, in the atmosphere. Uh, and most, about 40% of it comes from coal, oil and gas. And as so it will naturally reduce as we get those things down. And as we discuss in the interview, it mostly tends to come from, well, more of it comes from badly run facilities and they tend to be less economic. So it's kind of got uh, a natural kind of uh, w way to reduce it. But certainly I think we should have a, myself, I think there'd be a very good case for putting a cost on methane emissions, uh, a big cost. Uh, and that would encourage everyone to spend the capex to 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 re to reduce them, which they probably could do very efficiently. It'd be easy to, easy enough to burn off methane and just emit CO two, for instance. And and you know, you... I wonder if a methane price is more palatable than a carbon price. Uh, well, a methane cost, yes. A <laughs> methane tax. I th I think it's would be the best one of the best things you could possibly do to reduce global CO two emissions in the short term. Yeah, terrific. David, uh, thank you very much for doing that um, that interview with uh, Peter Rayner. Um, thanks to all our listeners out there. Um, that's a wrap for this week on the Energy Insiders podcast. Um, thanks to our regular sponsors, um, Pylon and Evergen. Uh, we look forward to seeing you all at the All Energy Conference, or for those who will be in attendance at the All Energy Conference in Melbourne next week. And um, somewhere next week, we'll find time to do another interview and another podcast. So... We'll see you then. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.